Hello, it's Michael Benner, and the program I did with Andrew Harvey on KPFK Friday Intervision, November 2nd of 2007, follows in just a few moments. But first, I want to briefly make sure you know that I'm moving this program from, well, broadcast to broadband, really. Just like TiVo for radio, we can deliver audio programs directly to your computer. You can listen anytime you want for as long as you want. And we can do it for a small delivery charge of just 99 cents a week. This program will not be available on any radio station anywhere in the world, but we'll be happy to deliver it weekly to your computer for just 99 cents. It's called Finding Yourself in Paradise. It includes the ageless wisdom of metaphysics and mysticism, but also the cutting-edge news and information on the brain-mind-body connection and other breakthroughs in science and quantum physics. You're really going to love it. And in addition to the information, there's going to be an audio journey on every program. An audio journey is our way of saying a meditation or visualization exercise. You can collect them and save them and share them with your friends. I know you're going to see a difference in your life right away. So be a charter member. The program's up and running. And you can enroll right now at FocusedPassion.com. Subscribe for only 99 cents a week. Put it on your ATM card, your credit card. 99 cents a week at FocusedPassion.com. Do it now. Be one of the first to subscribe. You're going to love it. That's FocusedPassion.com. Stay tuned. Here comes the InterVision program with Andrew Harvey. Thank you. Good afternoon, KPFK, on your very own radio at 90.7 FM, all over Southern California. Out of Santa Barbara County, we're at 98.7 FM, and of course, streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Hello, howdy. Michael Benner with you till 2 o'clock this afternoon. Nice to be with you. Nice to be, well, back in the saddle again. We've, uh, we've been off for what we thought would be two weeks, and... Turned out it was really three weeks that we set aside for our fall fun drive and did pretty well. I think, uh, you know, I never really did check, but last time I looked, we were getting real close to meeting our goal. So in any event, to every one of you who made a pledge or a donation to Pacifica, to KPFK, and especially those of you who uh, 
made your donation during the intervention spot. Thank you, thank you, thank you so very much. Uh, it's uh, what makes the gears go round here. It's how we pay the bills. It means that we're not only commercial-free every hour of every day, all year long, year after year after year, no stupid commercials. But even more importantly, uh, that means we're indebted to nobody but you, editorially. And uh, that's the way we like it. Powered by the people, KPFK. So thanks very much for that. Now, I have a wonderful guest. I'm very excited to get into the program today. We are, of course, live. We will be taking your telephone calls a little bit later in the hour. I know a lot of you are even going to recognize my guest. Uh, he's been with us before, several times, quite a few, what, three, four times. I think. Ah, I think this is my fifth time. Is it? Yes. But who's counting? Who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> but before we even introduce my guest, I have a real exciting announcement to make. Uh, two months ago, I announced that my wife, on this radio program, exactly two months ago today, I announced that my lovely wife, Doreen, and I are going to pack it in and move to Hawaii and slowly bring the curtain down on the Friday edition of InterVision on this program. And uh, so the end date is the end of November. Now, much has changed in the interim, and I won't go into all the details. Doreen and I still plan to go to Hawaii at the end of this month. But the good news is we're up and running on a program that I really want you to know about. It's a podcast that my friend Steve Snyder and I are going to be doing. And we've cut the first few already. This is a podcast called Finding Yourself in Paradise. And I say it that way because it really is about self-realization, discovering the truth of who you are based less on what you think about and that internal criticism, that negative dialogue that chatters in our heads so much of the time, and uh, introduce you to a more refined sense of who you are, based, first of all, on what you care about and even the idea that you care at all. You know, Steve, I've worked with them on and off for 30-plus years and... uh, um, starting way back in the day at uh, the Live and Learn Foundation. I know we have listeners that go back to Live and Learn, the old nonprofit educational foundation in the <laughs> San Fernando Valley. So the good news, you can sign up today. You can be a charter member if you sign up today. Uh, I just got a call from Steve, and he signed up. He's the <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> he's the very first guy. I'm going to sign up, too. And his credit card didn't kick out, so that was a great thing about it. It's 99 cents, King. It's 99 cents. Well, I think this is the future, Michael. I think what you're doing is radical and amazing, and I just wish you so much luck. Thank and I hope everybody listening will sign up to your podcast because they will be help birthing a new form, and it's so reasonable what you're doing and doing it for. So may you flourish. Thank you. And you know this, but nobody else knows it in the audience. You and I talked about this briefly. We are able to do on this podcast this one-hour program that we really put on the computer. You don't have to go searching for it every oh, week. Oh, how wonderful. It's just delivered right to your computer. But something we've never been able to do on the radio is a meditation. Ah, So each of these one-hour programs is going to have a 15-minute visualization 
and relaxation exercise on the end of it. So whatever is the theme during the first 45 minutes will, in a sense, install it during the So you'll make it an entirely sacred experience. So people will not just have the talk, they'll have a meditation in which they can integrate what yes. you're saying. That's the future, Michael. I just commend you for yet again breaking into new territory. This is wonderful. I'm, I'm real excited about it. So here's the site. We have a special site for you, Focused Passion. Dot com. Focus, passion, God, that's what we need. You like it? Yeah, I love it. That's with the uh, ED. Focused, everything is about that in this world, I think. Focused passion with the ED, focusedpassion.com, 99 mm. cents a week. Uh, it just started 20 minutes ago, so be one of the God, how exciting. Why did you choose focused passion? Steve came up with the idea. He said that he thought, here's the way Steve describes it. Again, this is a guy I've worked with for 30-plus years. He says, focus, of course, is rather mental in its nature. Right. Concentration or attention we know is a relaxation right. skill. Passion is more emotional and the doorway to spirituality. Right. So when we bring focus together with passion... We create a third entity. That's it. It's the third fire. This is what I'm doing with sacred activism. When you bring together the mystical truth of reality with the passion that's for it. justice, you create a new fire, the third fire. That's it. And that's what you're doing. And Focus, passion, and sacred activism, they come together. And that's the higher self, the true self. Yes. The it's the masculine and the feminine, too. The focus belongs to the yep. sacred feminine, masculine, rather, yep. and the passion is the glory of the sacred feminine. It's the alchemical wedding. Yeah. That's it. You guys know this voice. This is uh, a fellow who started out being one of many authors that I would interview over the years and fortunately uh, has become a friend of the family. And um, Doreen loves him and I love him and he cares for us. And I love them both. So nice to have you in town. Nice You've got to a brand new book. You're going to be speaking in Tustin this weekend. Yes. So let's interview, let's introduce in case you're not sure of that voice, the most prolific author and uh, genuine real-deal mystic, my friend Andrew Harvey. Thank you, Michael. Thank Lovely to be here. Welcome to KPFK. <laughs> nice to be back. Well, you have been a busy young man since... Oh, uh, busy like a... Yes, yes, now, yes, yes. Your focus in the last few years, I know you've had a lifelong interest in Rumi. Yes. But your focus in the last few years has really been on... Rumi in many ways. Well, for me, Rumi is the supreme mystical poet of humanity, if you like, the poet laureate of humanity. Mm. And at this moment when we need inspiration like oxygen, because there is a worldwide depression, a worldwide paralysis of will, a worldwide funk, because we're discovering how devastatingly destructive we've been as a race, it's so important to, to have a connection to the inner glory that we also are, the divinity that we also are. And Rumi is the supreme poet of that divinity. My great passion of the last bit has been the creation of a vision around sacred activism because I believe that by fusing together mystical passion and stamina and peace and deep knowledge with clear-focused radical action in the world, we're going to be able to birth a new divine humanity through this chaos and through this madness. And I've always loved Rumi, but more and more recently, it's becoming clear to me why I've loved Rumi so much. And the reason is, I think, is that Rumi is the supreme poet of sacred activism. He's returning to the world at this moment, not only to give us news of our divine identity, but to wake us up to the sacred passion of the heart. 
that once we get connected with it, once we get fired up by it, once we begin to be inflamed by its glorious intensity, we will be able to overcome this depression and paralysis that is damaging us so severely now and start taking wise action in the world to turn this dreadful situation around. We were talking, you and I, just before coming into studio this morning, about um, the Pacific Emission. Right. And I was reminding you how this radio station and and four others in the group were founded uh, initially in the late 1940s as part of uh, the Ban the Bomb movement. And, and mm-hmm. So this radio station not only is commercial-free, but always been dedicated to peace and justice issues. What a lot of folks like about the program and Intervision and, and why they respond so well when you and others like you are on is that we can face the gross injustices of the world, the yes. horror of war. Yes. We can talk about torture and rendering. Yes. We can talk about the odd tolerance that Americans have for hunger in our midst and yes. homelessness from a non-political yes. point of view. Well, I think that's one of the supreme achievements of the radio that you stand for, is that it's kept alive free speech and kept alive critical thinking. But most of all, and I think this is so important now, it's kept alive the authentic sources of inspiration. It's not enough just to see how, in what terrible situation we are. I think anybody at three o'clock in the morning knows that. Nor is it enough really to become inflamed by the injustices that we see all around us. That's very important. What is necessary for everyone now is to go deep, deep into themselves and discover the great love, the great hope, the great energy, the great sacred passion that comes from really experiencing yourself as a divine human being. That is really the core of our survival because unless millions of us start waking up to that inner divinity and start acting from it, the world is going to be devastated. If millions of us do wake up, and I feel very hopeful that they will, then we'll be able to co-create a new world. Rumi is the poet of the birth of this new world. And you know, before he died, he wrote these four extraordinary lines to his heart-beloved, his great master, Shams of Tabritz. He wrote these lines. Those tender words we said to one another, they have been stored in the secret heart of heaven. And one day, like the rain, they will fall and spread. And our mystery will grow green over the world. The world is being greened by the mystery of Rumi and Shams's love, by the revelation of divine love that came from their supreme relationship. And this greening of the world by the voice of Rumi is a call to everyone to wake up to the inner divinity, to wake up to the glory of the creation, to wake up to the mystical path and its rigors and ordeals, but also its tremendous promise of real transformation in the real world right now. Wake up to the birth of sacred passion within, so that armed with that sacred passion, we can go forward into this nightmarish reality and and keep giving and keep loving and keep serving, come what may, and wake up to... A life like Rumi's, because it's not just the poetry that he gave us. He lived for 30 years as an awakened human being in full view of his whole world. He wasn't a monk. He didn't go and stand on one foot in the middle of the snow in the Himalayas. He lived in a very sophisticated, tough city, Konya. He was awake for 30 years, the last 30 years of his life, roughly between 1240 and 1273. He lived in full view of his whole world as a father, as a grandfather, as a teacher, 
and is a great lover of cats, incidentally, <laughs> for which I love him. And well, that settles that. That's, well, you know the story. Do you know the story? I don't know. Oh, it's so beautiful. One of the things I deeply believe is that you can tell a person's realization by how tenderly they treat animals. This is something that has come to me very strongly. And once, when you begin to wake up, I think one of the first things you realize is that animals are very close to the heart of the Creator because they radiate the sacred innocence and the sacred beauty. Well, Rumi had enormous influence over animals. When he went to teach in the main square of Konya, the dogs of Konya, the wild dogs of Konya, would come and circle him, and they would moan like lovers in heat. And sometimes he would say, look, they get it, you don't get it, but the dogs get it. <laughs> and there's another marvelous story about one day a, a disciple following him and thinking, ah, I finally got him because he was carrying this tray of food. And Rumi was quite ascetic. I mean, he... he didn't starve himself, but he did fast. And they just have to say, oh, he's, he's full of you-know-what, and I'm, I know he's going with all this food, he's going to eat it secretly. And he follows Rumi, and Rumi's actually going out of town to this ruined mosque, and in the ruined mosque there is a bitch who's just given birth to six puppies, wow. and he's taking all the food to feed the bitch and her puppies. And he turns around, he sees the disciple, and he says, oh, I know what you're thinking. He said, doesn't, don't worry, we all have bad thoughts about people. But... I want you to know that when you are awake, you will hear the cry of a bitch in heat from ten miles away. It will come to you, and your whole heart will be moved, and you will want to do everything you can to help. And that is how you can tell the awakened from the unawakened. But the story I wanted to tell you is that when Rumi was dying, his cat, his beloved cat, was on his bed, and the moment he left his body, the moment his soul left his body, two things happened. The whole sky turned red, which is why every year on December the 17th, the death that he, his death day, which is called the marriage day, because he, they believe, and I believe, and I feel I know that he, he, he attained union with the beloved on that day, so it's the marriage, finally. And uh, the other thing that happened was that his cat howled and leapt off the bed and then refused to eat and died a week later. So when Rumi came to be buried, his cat died. And his daughter said, against all custom, we must bury the cat with my father mm. because my father was a friend to all creation, the words she used. So Rumi lies in glory in that great catafalque in Konya, which is always decorated by golden brocade and roses too aren't there and roses, roses all around us. well there are invisible roses and sometimes actual roses and he lying there in that grave with his dead cat in his arms I, I was given isn't that to, wonderful it's a beautiful story i was given to understand that uh, his gravesite had uh, there was a there was a period of time a few hundred years ago where it was almost lost to history and then it was rediscovered and fixed up, and today I don't think so. I think, actually, Michael, it I always think been it's always been known, because since the 13th century, Rumi has been known as the supreme mystical poet of Islam. And his great book, The Mathnavi, has been read all over Islam. It's, it's actually been referred to as the second Quran. In the last 40 years, Rumi has been, because of Coleman Bach's wonderful translations, yes. and I hope Robert Bly's and my own, Rumi has become really the most powerful and best-read poet of the West. And many people are now waking up to the fact that he's a unique figure because he combined the soul force of a Christ or a, with the philosophical intellect of a Plato and the 
literary gifts of a Shakespeare. He's the Shakespeare of the soul. You know, just as Shakespeare explores all the levels of the ego in his work, Rumi explores the immense drama of the soul's coming close to union with the beloved in all the marvelous things of his work. It's so extraordinary. You know, with all of the fear-mongering in the media and the portrayal of Islam in ah, the most negative way. So tragic. It is, isn't it? Islam is an extraordinarily beautiful and holy religion in many, many ways. And Muhammad is one of the greatest sacred activists who ever lived. Somebody who lived out his great prophetic mission in the middle of the world. Muhammad didn't um, die at 33 like Jesus. He, he lived on into his 60s. He was a kind of king. He was a leader. He was a great mystic. He was a prophet. He bore all the burdens of all of those different forms of life. And he exemplified in his life in enormous grace and courtesy and he left in the secret sayings as well as the Quran of course a whole mystic transmission which grew into the Sufi tradition and became the esoteric heart of Islam and that mystical tradition is terribly important to the future of humanity and Rumi is the rose of glory of that mystical tradition he is the supreme example of it so it's an ironic, isn't it, that at the very moment when this culture is at war with a, a disgusting and degraded vision and version of Islam, yeah. the greatest poet of Islam is haunting in the memory of the world. Haunting. That's, that's exactly my point. And that uh, also, uh, I mean, there are others of that period, a Sufi, uh, yes. like Hafiz, for example. How well, would you rate him compared to Rumi? Well, I think Rumi is the Beethoven of mysticism, mm -hmm. in, and Hafiz is the Mozart. Oh, okay. Um, Rumi is... How do you pronounce it? I said Hafiz. 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 Okay. It's... It's such a refined... Rumi is wild and tormented and grand and majestic and vast and spacious and full of the air of the sublimity of the mountains. He's got that immensity that Beethoven has in the Missa Solemnis and in the Ninth Symphony. Hafiz is, wrote far less than Rumi, and his work has a, a greater aesthetic finish than Rumi's does. It's, it's very refined. And he has... A, a more sparklingly cheerful vision of the divine than Rumi does. Rumi paid an enormous price for his realization, and he went through what can only be called a, a massive crucifixion of the heart when Shams died, probably murdered by Rumi's own son. And he went mad, and he roamed the streets of Hakonya and after Shams's death, and he only came to his realization of fundamental unity of Shams after extreme suffering. So his work has the the burn marks of that extreme suffering. Mm -hmm. And although Hafez lived a very difficult life in many ways, his poetry has a serene playfulness, an extraordinary radiance, just as Mozart's music seems to come from a different dimension. What are the challenges? You mentioned Coleman Barks and Robert Bly, and you too have yes. done the translation from yes. the original Farsi, and uh, I'm sure there are differences between 12th, 13th century Farsi and... The, oh, yes. My Farsi what are the challenges to... I mean, I get a feeling much of this cannot really be said very well in English, that it needed that language. Oh, I, 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 I hope that's not true. I tell, think, me, tell me what the challenges are. Well, I think there are three basic the, challenges. Is that the first challenge is to try and really get into 
through humility and through adoration, the mind of Rumi as far as you can. And that is a huge challenge because you have to have allowed your heart to be pierced open by divine love to begin to begin to understand what he's trying to communicate. That's the major challenge, to be on a spiritual path of the heart yourself so that these cries of the sacred heart, this immense transmission of the heart of humanity, the heart of God in humanity to humanity can pass through you. The second challenge is to be aware of the different meanings that the symbols that Rumi uses has. And these symbols like wine, for example, and when Rumi uses wine, he's not talking about the drink, he's talking about the intoxication of mystical ecstasy. So you need to know the whole lexicon of terms. When he's talking about different kinds of flowers, for example, he's talking about different kinds of mystical states. When he's talking about the rose, he's talking about the ultimate form of mystical union because the rose is perfect in its shape and has the perfect fragrance of of a completely opened divine human being. So you really need to understand the tradition. You need to understand why these symbols have been chosen to carry all of this mystical weight. The third thing is to really, really be accurate in how you convey his thought in the poetry. Rumi writes from the heart of this very powerful, very perfumed, very profound mystical tradition, and he writes with an enormous intensity and directness, and you really need to struggle hard to get a language in English that can convey that intense directness as purely as possible. So those are the three challenges. And all of the d- But the wonderful thing about the different translations is, is that, first of all, we all love each other. Coleman is an extraordinary man, and he's a dear friend of mine and he's been a great champion in my translations which is so generous of him, typically generous of him because Coleman knows that there is no rivalry between translators it's like different players playing the same music (laughs) they give different aspects of the music to, it's like I think Coleman's translations are full of the kind of sweetness and tenderness and deep spaciousness of Rumi and Robert Bly has brought his own unique vision of Rumi's transcendental passion and what I've tried to bring out is the suffering, is the wildness is the agony, is the heartbreak is the extraordinary ferocity that's also in Rumi so if you go from different translator to translator and basically you'll be able to build up a sense of his composite vast personality and that's so wonderful so exciting I don't mean to overgeneralize and I'm not that scholarly uh, in this field but Themes, metaphors like the moth to the flame, yes, or the longing of the flute for the reed bed, yes, are these not essentially a primary theme about the longing of the part to behold, the oh yes, divine homesickness, so called. Oh, that is the fundamental motive power of of Sufi mysticism. That love, love, is more than the warm, comforting presence of divinity there is also the ache the longing the urge and the heartbreak has to be part of it too doesn't it well i think you know in in sufi mysticism they say that god has two fundamental sides just and god being love so love has these two fundamental sides also they say god is both jamal and jalal jamal means tender, ecstatic, sweet, that extraordinary fragrance of the rose that you feel throughout Rumi's poetry. Amazing, amazing wonder and tenderness. When Rumi says, for example, 
Kill the lover in me and let only the beloved live. Give me naked ecstasy and naked wonder, O my soul. Pour from me, pour for me from the pitcher of absolute certainty, the wine that will never leave a headache. He's talking about the Jamal side. But there's also a Jalal side, and it's just a change of a letter. And the Jalal side is the ferocious, majestic, awe-inspiring, sometimes fiercely judgmental side of God that has to also come. So you can imagine love having a rose in one hand and a sword in another hand. And one of the things that Rumi says about Shams, and this is perhaps his most stunning line about Shams, his great teacher who changed his life, who really transfigured him, he says, we are the night, and he is like the sword soaked in dawn, a sword soaked in dawn, a ferocious passion that is soaked in the dawn of a new world, of a new vision, cutting through illusion, cutting through fantasy, cutting through every kind of human limitation to reveal the secret divine. So both of them come through in this work. In religion, especially, well, the monotheistic religions of the, of the West and the Middle East, Ju- uh, Judeo-Christian and, and Islam, Yes. Um, certainly there is the literal approach of the fundamentalist. Oh, yes. Um, Alas. Yes, and their idea of a return of love oddly uh, seems to be bound up in a lot of violence and warfare. Oh, and, it's a nightmare. Uh, it has know, nothing to do with the love of Muhammad or the love of Jesus or the love of Abraham. It's a complete and horrific fantasy. Love it's is... It's so odd. How could, the, how could love come? Why would love come? I, 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 I want to build a bridge to sacred activism. So here's right. what I'm saying. In addition to this idea of a new age or an Aquarian age coming in uh, war, nuclear war, and, and, and the, this interpretation of apocalypse and such, there also seems to be a real self-centeredness well, yes. about getting yourself to heaven. Right. Everybody else is burned to a crisp and you're saved. What a disgusting vision. Well, it has nothing to do with the birth that is trying to take place in, the, in this chaos. So nothing. hook us up to the idea that well, in spite of this longing of the part to be whole, of the separated to, to, to have communion, what is our responsibility in Sufi mysticism or any kind of mysticism? Well, let's take this. Let's take this to the say to, to to our to our our brother and our sisters. And well, let's let's take it. Let's let's look at this. I think we have to make a very different, a very deep distinction now between religion and mystical reality. I feel myself that the religions have lost their way. They've been largely hijacked by fundamentalists who have completely missed the point of the mystical transmission at the core of the religion. So now they're addicted to dogmas and to bashing other people on the head and, of course, now to tribal warfare, which is very dangerous because both sides and the Christian fundamentalists have got nuclear weapons. And if we invade Iran, there may very well be a third world war and everybody listening must do everything in their power to try and stop the lunatics in power from doing that because that would be a major disaster. And I feel one of the reasons why Rumi is returning both to the West and to Islam itself is to wake up 
all people everywhere to the authentic mission of love. And it's very clear to me what the authentic mission of love is at this moment. Clear because Rumi and Jesus have really helped me so deeply to see this. The authentic mission of love at this moment is to love all human beings, all animals, the entire creation with an absolute passion of sacred love and to start doing everything we can to heal the nightmare that we have created out of our addiction to power, out of our addiction to our false self, out of our addiction to greed. We can do this if we go through a mystical transformation. And the Sufis have a very, very great part to play in this mystical transformation within Islam, but also beyond Islam, for the very simple reason that the Sufi tradition has guarded the secret of divine love with a great intensity. And Rumi is the supreme poet of this secret, and that if we can get into connection with the divine love that lives in the heart center in every human being, if every human being can get into connection with that, then what every human being will see with the open eyes of the open heart is the entire creation bathed in the divine light, every single human being radiating that divine light, every animal being that light with fur, and the whole world being a theophany of the glory of God. And out of that dazzling and wonderstruck and awestruck vision, a whole new approach to reality will be born, what I call sacred activism. I think that mystics as they are now are addicted to transcendence very often. So they're often sitting in the and praying, and that's very beautiful, and meditating, and that's very beautiful, but they're not acting, and acting is essential now, because the world is not going to be saved by prayer alone, although prayer and meditation form a very good basis for real action. And many of the activists I know are either burnt out or so enraged that they are, for all their nobility and for all their heroism, and they are noble and they are heroic, they're also in divided consciousness, and divided consciousness is why we're killing the world. So I believe that if you take the two most potent fires in the human heart, the fire of the mystic's passion for God and the fire of the activist's passion for justice and bring those fire together, what you create is the third fire, the fire of sacred activism, the fire of what Rumi calls the ishk, the sacred passion at the heart of God that is endlessly acting to create and the new fire is born which can transform this apocalyptic situation into a situation in which the apocalypse reveals its real truth, which it is that it is the birth canal of a new humanity. But we're all going to have to do an immense amount of work, inwardly and outwardly, for this to take place. It's not written. It's a great grace that is at the middle of this nightmare, but we really do have to step up for it. It's not inevitable. The birth of a divine humanity is a very frightening, bloody thing. It won't take place prettily. It can't take place prettily because many things have to die for it to be able to be born. And that is another reason why Rumi is such an extraordinarily important poet for our time, because he is the poet of what I call the wisdom of the dark night. In the Sufi tradition, in the Christian tradition, in the shamanic traditions, they is enshrined this knowledge that for the false self to be healed, it has to die into love. There has to be a killing of the false self in reality. And that's what mystics do. They die into love. They say to God, heal me, help me free from this narcissism, from this self-obsession. Give me whatever I need, including whatever ordeals I need, to be free from myself so that I can live in the universal self, in the universal soul. That's Rumi what marriage went through is this. supposed to be. Well, I think marriage is the greatest crucifixion of the full self. Don't you think if you truly love someone else? Yeah, but nobody tells you that. You have to figure it out. 
Right. There's too much uh, effort to win and lose and set the other one straight. Well, that, I think, is why love is there, isn't it? Indeed. To burn you through that desire for power and to open you into the heartbreak of, of real acceptance. That's why marriage is a spiritual, or usually performed in a spiritual, if not a religious context, because uh, here's your first opportunity as an apparently separated being right. to know something of real spiritual union where the small self is put aside and something greater is honored, that synergy you talked about. Totally, and this is very important what you're saying, you see, because one of the things that Rumi is really giving the world now is a vision of sacred relationship. Because Rumi would never have been Rumi, and he said this a thousand times. In fact, he, he, never, he never signed his own poetry. He always signed it in the name of the, his beloved Shams. So. so Rumi's whole vision came out of an experience of union with another human being at the highest level. He and Shams fell overwhelmingly in love with each other. I don't think they were physical lovers. Mm -hmm. I believe that they knew love in such a total dimension that all of them was merged with each other in such a way that they communicated in the most unimaginably beautiful way which streams through the poetry. And Shams says, actually, in his Makalat, in the collection of sayings, that it's all that we have of him, he said, you know, the whole history of the world has been so that you and I could be together for this hour that we spend. Sometimes it feels that way. It is, but you, you see, that's right. how wonderful. <laughs> He's saying, this is why we're here. We're here yeah. to experience love between human beings. Yeah. This is sacred activism, because when we wake up to what we can experience together, then we'll wake up to what we could do together out of that experience of sacred joy. You and I are great friends. We're having a marvelous conversation. And I can't say these things unless I'm with somebody deeply sympathetic, like you can't say the things you say unless my heart awakens that in you. Sacred activism is bringing lovers together and working out of divine heartbreak at what we've done in divine joy to save the world. Because they just can't bear the injustice of war no and more hunger and, and cruelty to the animals and the savagery of madness. Which we're it's dealing not with. political. It doesn't have to be political. It must express itself through political action, but it must go beyond all political parties yeah, because none of them are really expressing the values of the heart. Yeah. It's the values of the heart now, the sacred heart, that need to be implemented on every level. Andrew Harvey, you know that voice... Uh, we have him, and he's going to be speaking at uh, the Unity Church in Tustin. When? Tomorrow? And I'm going to Sunday? be leading people into a journey with Rumi on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of next week in okay. Tustin. And my new book, Call to Love, will be the kind of centerpiece of that. But fundamentally, it's going to be an immersion in the depths of Rumi's message to us at this moment. Let's take a short break, and then we'll come back and talk. A little bit more about that, and what a nice book. Um, just Thank you. feels imbued with all kinds of love and warmth. Beautiful book, Call to Love. Andrew's latest out of, what, uh, two dozen, 30-some books you've written now? <laughs> yes. The most prolific, uh, Andrew Harvey, Call to Love. Add this to your collection. And stay with us, because we're going to take your telephone calls for Andrew. We're talking today about sacred activism. Okay, and of course Andrew's interest in Rumi uh, speaks directly to this whole idea. So, whole boy, if you're not f well, <laughs> whether you're familiar with Sufism or not, 
Uh, stay with us for the second This half is your lucky show. day if you want. As, as people call and ask questions, this is going to get even more fun. And this is hard for me, Andrew. I'm, I would just love to unplug the phones and sit here with you for the rest of the hour. So I'm sharing, only not because I want to, but because I must. Well, how lovely, though. 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK, with your questions for Andrew Harvey. And we're going to... Take a quick break right now, and we'll be right back. Stay with us. This is Intervision. My name's Michael Benner. Together, we're KPFK. KPFK and your radio, 90.7 FM, all over Southern California, out of Santa Barbara, 98.7 FM, and streaming for the planet at kpfk.org. Andrew Harvey, our guest on Intervision today. Andrew, a prolific author and mystic uh, translator of... Uh, Many of uh, Rumi's works and and uh, other works of uh, the great uh, Persian poets. You know, we're talking about politics. I don't I don't think there are very many people, unfortunately, in our government, the the U.S. government, that understand that Iran is Persia. No, it's not Iran. No, Iran's a made-up name. Then Iraq is Mesopotamia. This is the cradle. Well, I don't know. War and death and bombs and money and gas prices and that seems to be what people care most most about. And I don't mean to use too broad a brush. Obviously, we're at KPFK and there's all kinds of wonderful women and men that. Right, but uh, we are being ruled by very destructive and dangerous people whom we must prevent from going into this third world war which is trying to set up. It's quite clear they're trying to set this up. And that's why Rumi, Rumi is like the alternative voice both of Islam and of the mystical truth of the world. That's why he's so important. He's really saying to everybody, for God's sake, fall in love and change everything. I understand even jihad really means to fight your inner demons. It's a personal quest to purge yourself. Well, Muhammad himself said, you know, after returning from one of the wars that he fought, and he had to fight wars because his truth had to get across. He was a very unviolent man, however. And after one of the expeditions, he came back. Now we've been at the lesser jihad, but now we must start the greater jihad, which is the, the inner struggle within within yourself, the inner struggle against what the Sufis call the nafs, the false self, with its addictions, with its hungers for power, with its superiorities, with its judgments, with its desire to dominate other people. That is the great, great struggle. And that's what Sufism is all about. Rumi won that greater jihad and radiated the supreme love of the divine in his life and in his work. And that's why he is really, in when you know, on the day he died, December the 17th, which is called the marriage day, if you're in Konya on that day, it's the most extraordinary experience because young men dressed in white chant verses in Arabic by his tomb at the very moment when he left his body at 4.15 in the afternoon. And these ecstatic verses ring around the tomb. And one of the things they say is that Rumi is the light in the eye of Muhammad. He is the supreme vision at the core of the tradition of this divine love and mercy that transcends all things and penetrates all things and transmutes all things. A few years ago in L.A., the Medlevi dervishes came to town and it was on um rumi's birthday that we saw them perform ah on september the 30th he was 800 this september you this know this was that. a few years ago mm-hmm. and um what an entrancing experience to watch these oh, God, yes. 
these uh, mostly men, but many women also, in these beautiful skirts designed to spin. And um, the way they, you know, when I was a kid, right we'd spin, get dizzy, and heaven. fall down. But, yes. yeah, this is a science of oh, yes. creating an altered state. And as you began to say, continue with that, the idea of the hand receptive. Well, the whole dancing of the Medlevi order, everything has a mystical and cosmic significance. The right hand's raised up to, to be the funnel of the baraka, the grace that falls from heaven. And the left hand is extended to bestow that grace upon this dimension. And as they're turning, they're mirroring the great turning that every atom, every quark, every neutrino, every planet is doing. Uh, The whole world is dancing in the dance of the beloved. You know, Rumi says, um, one day in your wine shop I drank a little wine, meaning mystical ecstasy. I drank a little wine and threw off the robe of my body and knew, drunk on you, this whole cosmos is harmony, creation, destruction. I am dancing for them both. So the dance of the cosmos is what's being symbolized. And when the dancer is dancing in this Meblevi dance, they're saying under their breath, Allah, Allah, Allah. So they are merging with the one that is creating the entire cosmos through the dance of all of them. All possible opposites. The dance is the dance of opposites within the one that is beyond all opposites. And that is the dance that's being represented by the Meblevi order. But it's also that everyone who is dancing that dance is also united with Allah and also lost in that ecstatic peace. See, that's what to me is so seductive about mysticism, the idea that you could talk to a Christian mystic, a Kabbalist, uh, a Sufi, a Buddhist or a Taoist, a shaman, right? Uh, uh, African medicine woman, and they've all arrived at the same conclusion from sitting quietly. Well, Rumi says this in many ways, like all the great master mystics of humanity. He says, when you get to the Kaaba, you know, the black stone at the center of, um, the, of Islam, that immense black shrine that comes from Abraham that has an enormous and mystical history, if you come from it from many different directions. You can come by across the desert. You can come um, in a caravan. You can come by sea. But once you get to the Kaaba, everybody knows the same thing. All mystics speak the same language because they all come from the same country. There's only one divine light. And all peace feels the same. All ecstatic love. All lovers recognize each other. It doesn't matter how they've come to the experience of love. Think of that uh, statue of St. Teresa in Avila yes. with her eyes rolled back. Yes. And the local fundamentalists say, that's too sexual for a nun. Get that statue out of here. Well, Unfortunately, there are people who understand the ecstasy, what rapture used to mean before it became a disappearing act. Well, exactly. Well, rapture is of the body. I think one of the things that, one of the things you learn when you read the mystics, and you don't have to read, I mean, I thank God through the grace of the beloved, I've had many, many, many mystical experiences. Mysticism, in real mystical experience, the whole being is swept up into the great joy. And it's registered in the heart, the heart explodes open in ecstasy, the mind becomes filled with the light of beyond the mind, so it becomes the servant of an intellect that is the divine intellect. But the body also participates in this, and the, all the cells start to sing and dance and vibrate with divine passion. It's That's an allegory. The whole point. It's, a rich, it's so much richer as an allegory than 
Or, or take Christ walking on Well, I don't water. think it's an allegory. It's an actual experience, isn't it? Well, I mean the disappearing act, the idea that oh, you the lose your body. Oh, the rapture you know, is the and completely the left behind, the, the right. whole left behind thing. It's not a, you see, the problem with the fundamentalists, I mean, is that they have, I think part of their analysis is very brave. They are facing the apocalyptic nature of the times, and a lot of the new age is so narcissistic, it's not facing just how far gone we are. So I, I really appreciate the fact that the fundamentalists are talking about the potential end of the civilization because it's time that everybody understands that we could self-destruct. But their solution is entirely the, the wrong one. It's not what's going to happen because their vision is of disappearing out. The vision that is coming through the great mystics of the last 200 years, mystics like Aurobindo and Teilhard de Chardin, the mystics of the evolution of divine humanity, is about arriving in. So it's not about the the real rapture is not going to be us being sprung free of this world. It's going to be us arriving mm-hmm. in divine truth, in divine passion, in divine energy in this world as a result of this horror of this crisis. Focused passion in action yeah. is going to save this planet. And it's already here. We've already got it, If but we have the eyes to see. Or, or oh, there are figure. thousands of people out there focusing their passion the in the most honorable heaven ways. Is elsewhere. What a bore. Heaven is right here. In love. When you're in love, you're in heaven. Let's go to the telephones here. I'm hogging this show. I just love it too much. <laughs> let's, uh, let's see. In Los Angeles, Sandy, you're on KPFK. My guest is Andrew Harvey. Hi, Sandy. Yeah, we got her up. I don't hear any line noise. Well, you know that wonderful poem that Rumi wrote about heaven. Can I read that? Sandy Raptured, I think. Oh, this is what he said about he and Shams. It's five lines. Glorious is the moment we sit in the palace, you and I. Two forms, two faces, but a single soul, you and I. The flowers will blaze and bird cries shower us with immortality. The moment we enter the garden, you and I. In that place we laugh ecstatically, you and I. What a miracle you and I entwined in the same nest. What a miracle you and I, one love, one lover, one fire, in this world and the next, in an ecstasy without end. That's heaven, is the true realization of what we can experience right here when we open to divine love for each other. We have a number of callers. One wants to know why we don't say where he's from, but you have. You did. Well, Rumi was born in Balkh in Afghanistan, but he lived most of his life in southern Turkey in Konya. So he was a Persian-speaking, Farsi-speaking Balki from Afghanistan. He left with his family at the age of 12 because his father had a dream that Balkh was going to be destroyed by the Mongols. So he left probably in about 1219 um, and then started wandering around Asia Minor. He went to northern Iran where he met the great poet Attar as a young boy. And Attar said that... Ah, oh, this young boy will open a gate in, will open a door in the gates of love, which is an amazing phrase because that's exactly what he did. And then eventually he settled in Konya, and that's where he lived for the majority of his life. Let's, and that's where uh, he's buried. Let's try the uh, phones again. Do we have Sandy yet in LA? Sandy, you're on the air on Intervision. Hello? No, Sandy's not there. Okay, if you guys can. Okay, let's go to Orange County, and Ra, you're on KPFK and Intervision. My guest is Andrew Harvey. How do you do? No? What's the deal? Hello? There we go. Ah, yeah, nice okay, now you. we got you. You're Hi, at... Michael. Yes, go right ahead. I just wanted to ask you guys your take on the book 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. 
Oh, the book by Daniel Pinchbeck. Yeah. Oh, I think it's amazing. I think he's a man of genius. I think the book is stunningly written. I think he takes a very nuanced and subtle vision of the prophecies, the Mayan prophecies, which I take seriously. And I think his conclusions really are startlingly um, real. I think on the one hand he says... He doesn't say that it's going to be apocalyptic, that we're all going to be destroyed, which I think is the fake reading of that prophecy. He says that what's going to happen is that there will be a series of collapses of our culture at the moment, but there'll be a massive birth of a new vision, of a new way of acting, a new way of being and doing, which will offer potentially the chance for a massive birth of a new kind of humanity. And I think that I agree with him that it's coming soon. I think the Mayan prophecies are very, very sacred, very important. And I agree with him that it's not inevitable, that the humanity is going to have to step up to the plate for this birth to be to take place. We, we will be given the choice between suicide or adoration. And I am hoping, against all possible evidence at the moment, that we are going to choose adoration. And I believe that we will. I believe that agony and heartbreak and the mystical transmission that is coming through to humanity will combine to really help millions of people finally claim their inner divinity and start acting as human beings instead of as greed or yeah, jests. I just finished reading it, and I, I'm sort of taking some of the details of the prophecies pretty seriously, and so I feel somewhat of an immense desire to maybe uh, get into surroundings that may not be as cataclysmic. Um, You're not going to be able to hide from the cataclysm. Wherever you are, your heart will be broken by what is going to come down. So don't think that you'll be able to get away. I think that I would suggest that there's another approach. I would suggest that the real approach is to get into the inner garden, the inner paradise, the inner heart, to start really connecting with the divine within and then choosing something in the world that you can devote yourself to, something that really breaks your heart that you can do something about it. People used to say, follow your bliss, but what I say to all sacred activists is follow your heartbreak. Get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, look around at the pain of the world, and find which of the sufferings really, really affects you, and start doing something about them, or that one, in your local situation. Don't, don't go to where you'll be safe. You won't be safe, because nobody's safe. Nobody will be safe. The only place you can ever be safe is in the depths of the heart. That's the only safety that there really is. Everything else call. is precarious. I'm going to cut you off, Andrew, so only so we can get to a couple more of these callers here. In Pasadena, Nadia, you're on the air on KPFK with Andrew Harvey. Hi. Hi, Nadia. Go right ahead. <laughs> Hi, Nadia. Hi, you caught me with my mouth full. Yeah, um, yeah I had an experience um, five years ago where... Um, um, I had a shamanic experience, and uh, after the shamanic experience, I went to the store and got a book on uh, five illuminated prayers of the Sufi and started studying Islam. Oh, how wonderful! And uh, well, this the spirit teacher directed me to do this, and and as a consequence of this uh, shamanic experience, poems have been pouring from me. I have a book I'm in the process of finishing. They all sound like Rumi and Yogananda. They're all spiritual lessons that, that just seem to come flow and. It all involves love, spirituality, and and, uh, and, uh, and getting your spiritual house in order, basically. That's Congratulations. Beautiful. Do you have a question for Andrew? I'm sorry. Um, well, do you, I, I, when I did start going to the, the um, mosque, 
I asked some of my peers there, do you believe in past lives? And many of them said, oh, no, no, that doesn't happen. And I just, you know, I didn't want it. I just wanted to know what they believed in, but I truly believe that we've lived before. And Rabiel was, was one of the particular oh, Sufis gee, that yes. uh, um, when I told the story to a, a sheikh at the mosque, he said, um, Rabiel should be your name. How so, wonderful. Yeah, and I feel really aligned with Rabiel. I've read her poems, and I went, oh, my God, they sound like mine. Well, I mean, to be, Rabia is a supreme mystical teacher of, of mm-hmm. Sufism. She was the first person to bring in the vision of love, the God as the beloved. So yes, she, and that's, you know, I've written... So you belong to that stream. I wouldn't absolutely. necessarily identify yourself with Rabia, because I imagine that Rabia is probably doesn't need to reincarnate. She's no, because I union. am myself, but it's very aligned with the spirit teacher who could be very well, Rabia. Right. Yeah. Nice. How Thank wonderful. You. Thank you for your call. And uh, I guess we got Sandy back online. Okay. We'll take one more. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Okay, uh-huh. bye-bye. Let's go to Sandy real quickly. Uh, you're on KPFK on Intervision with Andrew Harvey. Hi, Sandy. Hi. Can you hear me now? Can, yeah. Yes. Yep. How lovely. Uh, hello. Hi, Mr. Harvey. Thank nice you so to much hear for you. your great program. Um, I just wanted to ask if you could comment on the uh, the issue that many of the um, uh, new scholars are saying that uh, Rumi, although he was very Islamic at the early part of his career, that in his um, later writings, he actually denounced Islam and um, was much more sort of a, a mystic in, in the grander sense. Can you please comment on that? And I'll take my. I don't think there. that I don't think Rumi ever denounced Islam, and he remained an, a Muslim all his life. And is to say that you can't be the grandest possible mystic in Islam is to deny the huge mystical power of Muhammad, to deny the huge mystical power of the great Sufi mystics like Attar and Sanai and Hafiz, all of them Muslims. What Rumi did say in his Rubaiyat was that, and did again and again criticize, was the dogmatism that was creeping into Islam because he made a deep separation from what he... from from the authentic message of Islam, all embracing divine love, and the dogmatism and the fanaticism that even then was polluting Islam, and of course now has tragically hijacked a great deal of Islam. So I think Rumi not only didn't denounce Islam, but Rumi is the authentic voice of Islam. Thank you. It's a wonderful answer, and uh, we never have enough time, but Andrew, thank you so much. The new book, Gang, by Andrew Harvey, is called to love. It's full of roomy verses and some very nice photos, I must say. Thank too. you very much. Call to love, Andrew Harvey. Also, you can catch Andrew this coming week in Tustin at the Unity Church. I don't have their web address, but if you Google Unity and Tustin, you'll find it. Unity of Tustin. Okay? Good people down there. Say hello to all our friends. Wonderful people. And Andrew's website is andrewharvey.net, not the usual .com or org, andrewharvey.net. God bless you, sir. It's so nice to have you Lovely here. Lovely to be here. And uh, thank each of you for listening and calling D'Angelo for engineering and Brooks for producing, my wife Doreen for all her help. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. We may say a lost farewell.